And um, when we come to this subject this evening, as we kind of progress in our discussion of these things, this is where it begins to get more or so interactive in the sense of not potentially audience participation here, but interactive in our view of our lives. The whole idea of, of putting God to the test, where we have to get out of the armchair and into the battlefield ourselves. Now, we're not putting God to the test in the sense that Israel did in the wilderness, but actually listening to what he has to say and giving it a go, as we looked at at Sunday school, taste and see if Yahweh is good. So we have to put him first in all things. So let's just go back to Matthew chapter 6 that we were looking at the other day, which is kind of our, our marker here as we kind of travel through this study together. Um, but as no doubt you realize, as we look at this, the Lord was drawing all of these principles from the law and from the prophets and from the Psalms. So back in Matthew chapter 6 and at verse 33, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, the word there, added, is interesting. It means, basically, um, to put on, to join to, and to gather with. It's actually a similar word to our word prosthesis, when you think of, like, adding a limb or adding a, a, an extension to a limb or something along that lines. And this is the interesting part of this, because... If we put him first, then he will take care of the rest. It's not theory, but a fundamental test of our faith. And so we looked at this in our exhortation yesterday um, when we considered Abraham. Let's just turn back to Romans chapter 4, just to kind of re, uh, bring this back into our minds. In Romans chapter 4, we read there in that latter part of Romans 4, in verse 19, that Abraham, being not weak in faith, considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. And that word there, to consider not, is that idea of he didn't fixate his eyes upon his own weakness. And it goes on to say he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And the word stagger is this idea of diacrino, to be at variance or to hesitate in doubt. So we think of the word vacillate as kind of a similar type of idea, where basically it's, it's vacillating in doubt. Will God look after me? Won't he look after me? He believed, as it goes on to say, being strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he, that is God, had promised, he also was able to perform, and therefore it's imputed to him for righteousness. He believed that God was, f and was fully persuaded, not just believed. It wasn't just part marks of kind of like, well, I think this is what's going to happen. He was fully persuaded that God had promised he could perform. And that is proven later on as it is picked up where, of course, he offers his son Isaac. And that is the full test of his faith that is counted to him for righteousness. He believed that what God had said would happen. So the question then comes about, what about us? How then do we fare in this whole situation? We'll come over to James, and again, the context of this in, in James chapter 1 is about asking for wisdom, but the principle is the same all the way around. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, verse 5, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it will be given him. 
but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. And there's the idea, doubting. For he that wavereth is like a, a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. So that's the idea here. If we cannot think of these things, and when you think of it, wavering there, the idea um, is staggering not, being with no variance or hesitation. It's absolutely that's the same idea that we were just looking at. It's the same word. So we cannot fix our eyes on our own seemingly helpless circumstances. We cannot vacillate as to whether God will work in our lives or could work in our lives today, wavering like the sea. But we must be strong in faith, giving the credit to God, and be completely convinced that what God has told us, he is actually able to perform in our lives. And that conviction has to carry over into the everyday issues of our life. Whether we are talking about our schooling, our jobs, making our living, looking after our children, whatever is our existence in the here and now. So God challenges us with this. This is Malachi chapter 3. And Malachi tells them, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, verse 10, that there may be meat in mine house. And, and this is God's challenge to us. Prove me now herewith, saith Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, and that there shall be not enough room enough to receive it. So that's God's challenge. That's not man's challenge. That's God's challenge. He's, it, so this isn't tempting God. This is God testing us and saying, prove me. Prove me and see. I promised you this. Do what I ask and see what happens. And so put me first, provide meat in mine house, and see if I won't open the, win the windows of heaven. So this is the principle of tithing, but it's, of course, much more than that. It's the idea of giving to God what he has given to us. And so that's the idea that we have in this, putting God to the test, proving him, not in a bad way, but in a good way, examining, proving, scrutinizing, putting to the test, making proof or trial of. So that's what he challenges you and I to do. Now, you've got to take that and put that in terms of life today. We don't have the temple up in Jerusalem. We don't bring our 10% of whatever it might be up there and basically present that to God. But we do have to bring to our God and provide meat for his house. Now, when you think about this, the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples to do exactly the same thing. Come to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And... Um, coming in here at verse 45, where he challenges them, and he says, Who then is a faithful and a wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. So you think of the tithe. What was the tithe for? It was to provide meat for the house. It was to feed the Levites. It was to feed the priests. It was bringing of your sustenance and to present that to the house of God. Well, the Lord now is taking us to the next level. We are the house of the living God. It's not just about the physical bringing of the animals and the wheat and the harvest and whatever else. It's about bringing meat to the household in due season. And he says, blessed is the servant whom the Lord shall find doing when, when, he, uh, when he comes. Now, when you take that, 
Um, the Apostle Peter, if you come over to John 21, after the Lord was risen from the dead, John, uh, Peter is, is challenged by the Lord to do exactly this. So John 21 and verse 16, we read there, he told him, this is Peter, multiple times, he said unto him, feed my sheep. Now, of course, we know there's much more to this, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, but I just want you to focus on this point right now, that he's told them about giving meat in the, the house in, in due season, and here Peter is exhorted to feed the sheep. That's what the Lord wanted him to do. Now, if you come over to first to Peter, having learned this lesson from the Lord, he then passes it on to the elders of his day. So we have there the elders which are among you, chapter 5 and at verse 1. I exhort, who also am an elder, and he says, feed the flock of God which is among you. Not for filthy lucre's sake, he goes on to say, but of a ready mind. So important thing to note here, it wasn't for personal gain. He wasn't interested, and, and that was not the emphasis. The work wasn't being done to increase his bank balance or anything along that lines. And that gets mixed up in the whole Christian businessman kind of view of things. Um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. The point was, God would look after those who put him first, but that wasn't to be their motive. And so when he tells him here to feed his sheep, to feed the flock of God, to provide meat in due season, it's the same principle as bringing the tithe. So when we take that and we apply that back to ecclesial life, it's, well, how do I do that in ecclesial life? If I have the ability to teach Sunday school, do I engage in teaching Sunday school? If I have the ability to, you know, take a Bible class or whatever it might be, a sister's class or something like that, do I do that? If I'm an elder sister, am I engaged in helping the younger sisters, teaching them to love their husbands and their children and being a pattern for them to follow after? On all levels, teaching and feeding the sheep. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean platform work. My father was somebody who wouldn't take the platform, hardly ever. Um, but he would be the one that if an interested friend came in, he'd go sit next to him, start chatting away with him, and they might start talking about some sports team or some irrelevant thing to start with. Within five minutes, the chess game was on, and the conversation had come around, and he was talking about the kingdom of God. And it literally was like a chess game. He would be three moves ahead. I used to sit there and try and write down. I'd sit behind him, and I'm like, okay, where's he going with this? But, of course, every interested friend was different. And so the conversation would go this way and that way, and he would just weave it back, and you would end up talking about the kingdom. So it's not necessarily being at the platform. It's talking to young people. It's inviting them into their home, providing for them a venue to do the readings, to get the word of God living amongst us. And that's the idea here that we have. So taking that principle of the tithe and applying it, what have I got? What are my resources? How can I use them to better the ecclesia, to bring the tithe to the house of God? And not taking the mindset of, well, you know, yes, I, I can help out in the ecclesia, but first of all, I've got to finish my school. And then I can help out. Or first of all, I've got a, this big project for, for school, maybe, or for work. I've got this thing that I've been asked to do, and after that, then maybe I'll, I'll get on and do something along that lines. That's what, not, not what God says. He says, bring the tithe. He says, prove me. 
and see if I won't look after the other things. So we have to make sure we take that on board when we look at this. It's the biblical principle of generosity. If you come to Leviticus chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 6, and we've all had those people in our lives, and I'm going to say especially the mothers in Israel is what I would call them. When we were starving teenagers and would travel from our home ecclesia, which was 10 hours to the next ecclesia pretty much, 7 to 1 and 10 to others, um, we would go down to a young people's weekend and there would be a car full of teenage boys. Um, and, you know, teenage boys can eat a lot. Um, and we'd go down and we'd stay with this couple and they would feed us and they would look after everything we wanted and to come home, they would provide this huge basket of food for us to take home that would feed us all the way home. I never thought of think of it. It was just expected until I was a dad and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money. You know, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of preparation. And I re recognized and realized that that mother in Israel had provided a sanctuary for us to go to, and of their sustenance, they looked after us, they, we were always welcome to come, it didn't matter when, and they provided for us. Now that wasn't platform work, that was giving to God. And so in Luke chapter 6, and at verse 38, we read there, give and it shall be given unto you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. But with the same measure that you meet, with all shall it be measured to you again. And so that's the principle. Everything we have is God's. So how are we going to steward it? Will we keep it for ourselves and think, well, this is mine? Or are we going to be generous with his resources to further his work? Now, the same principle is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. The Lord pulls from all kinds of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We find the same principle laid out there in chapter 11 of verse 1. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. So the idea is about being generous and about providing for the household meat in due season. And of course, this was much more, I would say, relevant um, in the daily lives of people who didn't go to a grocery store and buy their cereal in a box, right? Or their chicken, a nice cellophane package where it's already been plucked, deboned, you know, there's no grisliness to it at all. It's all sanitized. Well, back in the day, when of course this was not the case, <coughs> the principle of generosity was something that, you know, was very relevant. Come over to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, because this principle, everything we have is God's, and what are we going to do with it? So uh, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, just because you have to, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. And, and so he goes on. So this idea of sparingly is to abstain or to forbear. So it's, it's holding back. We got it, we could use it, 
but we're holding back on the resources that God has given us, whether it's our time or whatever it might be. What he says is he wants us to do it bountifully. So this is the word eulogia, which is the idea of with praise and with happiness. Right? So this is the idea. It's with happiness. And he goes on to say, you know, because God loves a cheerful giver. Well, the word there in the Greek is hilaros, from which we get our word hilarious from. Right? This is with joy, with graciousness, with optimism. It's, it's with happiness. That's how our service in the truth needs to be. Now, I mean, I'm not going to kid you. We don't always feel that way, you know, and I know you are the same as I am. Um, you don't always feel that happy about, you know, the work of the truth. Sometimes it's, it's wearing and you're tired and your, your flesh is getting the better of you. But that's the kind of mindset we have to develop, is one where this is our joy. This is our hope. This is our crown of rejoicing to see our brethren and sisters in the kingdom of God. And so we will do whatever we can to facilitate that. Having all sufficiency. The word there is a condition where aid or support is not needed because the mind is content with its lot. So it's not like, well, I would do this in the ecclesia if I had that. Or I would do this if God gave me this or whatever. It's whatever we've got, we use it. A mind that's content with what we've got. We're not always chasing, I want more, 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 more. What have I got to work with? And that's what I'm going to use. Whatever God has given me, that is what I'm going to use. Now, this principle of willing-heartedness goes right back to the law of Moses. Let's go back there, um, back to Exodus chapter 35, um, because this is what we see Way back when Israel is first brought out of Egypt, Exodus 35 and verse 4, Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which Yahweh commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto Yahweh. Well, who's going to bring the offering? Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it an offering to Yahweh. And remember, it's not always about money. It's about time. In fact, it's probably more about time. It's about effort. It's about giving of ourselves, participation and support. It's about pouring ourselves out in service for our God. What it actually is, is living the memorial table every day. What, is, what are we instructed by Paul? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. So when we take those emblems, what are we doing? the bread, put to death the flesh. So whatever my will is and my ambition and what I want to do, that gets crucified and that goes on the altar. The wine, pouring out our life. The life is in the blood. So this is actually the activity that we do. And we pour out our lives in service to our God at the expense of our own ambitions. And we put our offering on the altar. And you know it never sits on the altar by itself. When, I, when an Israelite came and they brought their offering to Yahweh, it never sat on the altar by itself because there was always the evening and the morning sacrifice there. The Lord Jesus Christ has already been on that altar. Whenever we bring ours, we are simply adding to his sacrifice. And so that's what he's asking us to do. Take up your cross and follow me. And you look at his life. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but he had nowhere to lay his head. 
And he was constantly, you know, without meals and whatever. His meat was to do the will of him that sent him. So this is the thing that we're called for. Of course, we know if we were to read on in, in Exodus 35 and so on, they brought so much that Moses had to say, all right, stop it. We, we can't even hold it all. That was the, the spirit of the people at the time. So <clears throat> we have to be prepared to be put to the test. Now, nobody likes it, um, but it is a good process. And we don't always get it right on the first, second, or even the third time. And sometimes we have to work at it. We are constantly improving and reevaluating and striving to do better, but we can't do anything if we don't participate in the process. And so that's what we have to do. Now, Israel in the wilderness was proved by God. And this is that section we had read, and let's just go there to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is a wonderful chapter. And if anybody ever thinks that the law of Moses is all legalistic and whatever, they're dead wrong. The law of Moses is pure and beautiful and converts the soul. Man's interpretation and use of the law is what became a problem. But the law itself was a wonderful thing. And in there are all these principles, and that's what the Lord's doing in the New Testament, in his parables, is bringing this out. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, we read there, All the commandments which I command thee this day shalt thou observe to do. Why? that ye may live. It's for our benefit. And multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swear to your fathers. So this was the thing they were to observe to do them. The word Shema, which means to guard, to protect, to treasure up, or to pay heed to. So you've probably heard it in a little Israeli phrase, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Hakad, right? Hear, O Israel. Listen, obey, listen to these things, treasure them up, right? Observe that you may do with these things. Pay attention or pay heed that you may live. And he goes on to say, thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or not. That's what God was doing in the wilderness. He was humbling them and proving them. That's what God is doing with you and I in our lives right now. It's the exact same situation. And so he says he wants to humble them. And the word literally is to be afflicted, to be weakened, to look down. He was crushing the pride and the arrogance of flesh. Why? Well, because they were going to be in the way, the journey, the manner that, uh, of life that they were going down, and he was proving them on this journey to know what was in their heart. And the word know there is the word yada in the Hebrew, which means to know by experience. So when you think of the Jews and their Yiddish, you've probably heard them say yada, 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 right? So I get it, I know, I know, I know is what they're saying. This is that word, right? To know. But it's not just to know experimentally. It means to know by experience. Now, when my son was 14 years old, I could ask him, do you know how to drive a car? And he'd say, sure. You take the key, shove it in the ignition, turn it, car fires up, put your foot on the brake, put it in gear, you know, take your foot off the brake, press it on the gas, it'll go forward, turn the wheel this way, it'll turn right, turn the wheel that way, it'll turn left. It's all theory, 
perfect. Am I going to get in my brand new truck and let him drive away? Absolutely not. Why? Because he has no experience. He has no yada. He might be able to tell me theoretically, but he can't feel the road. He doesn't understand all of those things. So that's where, you know, yada means to know by experience. It's experiential knowledge. And that's what God was doing with Israel. He wanted to find out what was really in their heart. By them going through these experiences, not theoretical trials, but practical proving grounds. You can call the march through the wilderness as biblical boot camp. That's really what it was. We're going to prove you. Can you cut the mustard or not? And that's the same thing with us when it comes to our lives in the truth. And so God would prove them in verse 3. He humbled thee. And how did he do that? Well, he suffered them to, hung, to hunger. Wasn't that terrible? Right? You know, you think of God. I mean, everybody in the world thinks of him like Father Christmas, hands out presents to the kids, naughty or nice, doesn't matter. Everybody gets one or two. But God, in the wilderness with Israel, suffered them to hunger. Why? Well, because then he fed them with manna. See, there's the trial and there's the way of escape. Right there, next to each other. Thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know the manna that they were eating, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Yahweh doth man live. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. And there it is. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? And wherewithal shall we be clothed? And that was Israel in the wilderness. He fed them with manna for the purpose of teaching them a lesson. It's not survival based on purely animal desires being satisfied. It was about learning obedience to God's word. And that's what it is for us when we go through trials in life. He will withhold stuff from us at times to prove us whether we will walk in his way or no, to make us to understand that we don't live by bread alone. It's not about what's in our bank account, what's in our retirement fund, what's in the fridge, what's in the pantry. It's not about those things. It's about putting our trust in our God. So he will provide a test and then a way of escape. And so what we have to do is be ready to be tested. He suffered them. He allowed them to feel the pains of hunger. Brothers and sisters and young people, God will do that in your life. I guarantee it. He will let you feel the pains of hunger. And so get ready to be tested because that's what's going to happen to you. It happens to every single one of us somewhere along the way. And it happens over and over again. Why would he do this? Well, verse 5 goes on to say, Thou shalt consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so Yahweh thy God chasteneth thee. So consider. Again, it's that word yada, to know by experience the chastening or the instruction, the discipline, the correction of our God. So when we go through trials, we can't stand there and hold our fist at God. What we've got to do is ask, what is God trying to teach me? And that's true for personal trials, financial trials, ecclesial trials, worldwide ecclesial trials. 
What is our father trying to teach us? What are we to learn about this? Because all trial has one goal, God manifestation. To learn his character and to exhibit it in the worst possible circumstances. So that we show patience, long-suffering, mercy, goodness, truth. We don't clear the guilty. We don't just sort of be permissive, but we are also merciful. And the same characters that our God has, we try to develop in our lives and show them. So ask the question when you go through trial, what is God trying to teach us in this circumstance? And don't be afraid to share them with your children. Be honest with them. I can remember um, back, I would say, I was probably 12, and my sister had died. Um, my father had lost his job. We had one meal left. That was it. And we ate that meal. I remember the name of it because we christened it Yock because it was rather gross. It was string beans and a little bit of cut up bacon and some sauce squirted in um, with a little bit of noodles. And we ate our last meal. And my dad said to us, kids, I don't know where the next meal is coming from. But God has promised that he will provide for us. Now, we lived in a, in a subdivision that was basically used to be an orphanage, or not orphanage, uh, what do you call it? Orchard, that's the word. That's the dyslexia, I get that from my dad. Um, so it was, it was an orchard. And so we had five apple trees, an apricot tree, and a plum tree, and a, and a peach tree. So we had some fruit, but actual food, you know, day-by-day day sustenance, we didn't have. So we prayed that night about, you know, God providing for us. He didn't have a job. And we just weren't sure where the next meal was coming from. The next morning, from the ecclesia in, in what it would now be Okanagan, Uncle Bar Bartholomew, who you might know, from that meeting drives up four cars loaded to the gunnels with groceries. We had no idea. My dad had no idea how they knew he was in such a strait. And so our garners were full, absolutely filled up. And that lesson as a young man was indelible. Now, it probably wouldn't have meant so much to me if my dad hadn't told me the night before, this is it, kids, but we've got to trust in our God. And so those are the things we've got to share with our children so they don't just kind of go through life thinking that everything comes from a grocery store. And so what we've got to do is look for God's hand in our lives. Come to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 and at verse 13, Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Now you think about this. Generation after generation had lived in Egypt under the boot of the Egyptians. It's all they knew. The children, the parents, the grandparents, all the way back to Joseph, well, to the generation that arose after Joseph and the Pharaoh that knew not God. That's all they'd known. And yet this day, the impossible was going to happen. They're taken out. They're taken to the Red Sea. The sea parts. They go through it, and the Egyptians are going to be taken away. That problem that had plagued them for generations, gone in a flash, never to be seen again. And that can sometimes happen in our lives, brothers and sisters. 
where there are things that we struggle with and we work with and, and we, we worry about and we, we stress over and God can take them away in a flash. Look for God's hand in our lives. And that's the exhortation that comes out in Psalm 119. So if you come to the 119th Psalm, all the way through it, of course, every verse we have the word of God in here in one form or another. But just take a look at a couple of these. It's a common theme throughout the Bible um, for God's discipline of his saints. And it's how we learn. So Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept thy word. So in our affliction, why? What is God trying to teach us? And we don't always know, and sometimes it takes years to figure that out. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I've kept thy word. So God causes affliction for us to reevaluate our paths. The psalmist came to this conclusion that affliction was actually good for him. In Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Now, we never say that in the moment. You're like, let's get that clear. It's often way in the future that we can look back and say, the benefit I can see now out of that circumstance. But that's what the psalmist says here. And, and God's judgment isn't unlike our, uh, well, it is unlike our own. It's just, it's very just. He says in verse 75, I know, O Yahweh, that thy judgments are right, and thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. So God brings us through these things righteously and in faithfulness. And we can take comfort in his discipline as we look for his hand in our lives. So let's go to the New Testament where, of course, it picks up on these phrases, both from uh, the Proverbs and from the section we read in Deuteronomy in Hebrews chapter 10, or 12, sorry. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 we read here, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh to you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So the word there, chasten, is literally the idea of a padidia. It's like the idea of a, the, um, in the school where you'd have the servant who would sit behind the child with the pokey stick, and if the kid's fooling around, you should probably have some of these at CHC, right? Poof, he would poke him with a stick, and he would jump up, and he would keep him disciplined. That's the idea here. And so the chastening of the Lord, the education of the child, the cultivation of a mind and morals, correcting mistakes, curbing passions, increasing virtue. Now, the world knows absolutely nothing about that because children get everything they want. Passions are not curbed whatsoever. They get everything they possibly desire, and we cannot raise our children that way. Absolutely against everything that God stands for. And so the correction that he provides for us is, is critical. Nor faint when thou art rebuked. And the word there literally means conviction by bringing to the light, to expose, to refute, to correct fault. And brothers and sisters, rebuke of God is a very merciful thing. And sometimes we don't feel that at the time. So you can think of somebody who falls into an egregious sin. And they struggle with it, and they struggle with it, and, and they don't deal with it. So in God's mercy, he pulls back the curtain, and he exposes it to the ecclesia. 
And now that individual is, is flayed open before the whole ecclesia. And sometimes you hear, isn't it terrible? Actually, no. It's the grace and the mercy of God because some men's sins are known beforehand. And had that person gone to the judgment seat without that situation dealt with, they would be condemned. But because God draws back the curtain, they have the opportunity, and they don't always take it, they have the opportunity to humble themselves and to repent and to change their ways so that their eternal life is not lost. Now, there are consequences they have to live through. So sometimes when terrible things happen in ecclesial life and these things are exposed, don't do what we sometimes want to do and bury it all, you know, and hide it. And all oh, this is embarrassing and let's tuck this out of view. God has exposed that to save that person's life. And I can tell you, if we do cover it up and we do hide it and it's not dealt with, it will happen again. So when God exposes something like that, although it's very painful, it's his mercy to save that person's life. Now, the same thing's true with us. There are times when we're dealing with things that we just can't seem to get a grip on. And we try to deal with them, but we just don't do a good job of it. And so we're told, confess your faults one to another. Go get some help. Don't be too proud to go to a brother or sister and not the Oprah Winfrey, you know, throw all the dirty laundry out in front of it. Go to a brother or sister and say, I'm struggling with this. I need your help. And, of course, one of the key things in that is prayer. There is a prayer in the Bible that, that I've dubbed the prayer of the brave. Come to Psalm 139, because if you really think about this prayer, you've got to be pretty gutsy to pray it. Psalm 139, and it's verse 23. Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now to me, that's one of the gutsiest prayers in the Bible. You're asking almighty God to flay you open and show you in your life the things that stand between you and the kingdom of God and lead you in the way everlasting. That is a prayer that we need to embrace. Because every single one of us have those hidden corners, and they're different for you as they are for me. Temptation and trial are completely different. If you were to take a plate full of heap, heaping prawns, or shrimp as we call them, and put that in front of my wife, you couldn't tempt her for one second. She would just say, those are the maggots for the sea. You know, like it wouldn't bother her for a minute. Me, on the other hand, ooh, you know, so I love that. So you, you can see one thing that tempts one person is repugnant to another. We all have different things, and I can't look at you and say, oh, that bothers you, like, oh, that's terrible. Well, what bothers me is probably a whole lot worse, but you just don't get to see it. But this prayer here is asking God to enter into our lives, and it works on multiple levels. And we have to ask God to engage in our lives because we don't know what is in our hearts. We don't always know our motives. We don't always know the things that we do and the motive behind them. But what we want, our goal, is to be in the kingdom. Show us what's wrong and lead us in the way everlasting.
And that ties right into this idea of seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If there's any wicked way in me, expose it. Show it to me. Help me deal with it and lead me in a way that's right. And sometimes that requires us to go get help. You can talk to an older brother, older sister, somebody else that you might know. Chances are they've been through it. I mean, we think about, you know, there is no temptation taken you that's common to man. But God will provide a way. And I guarantee you somebody in your meeting has gone through the same things. Now, you might not think so. or oh, nobody could have the same terrible things I deal with. Guess again. We're all made of the same stuff. It's all the same mud, dirt, you know, Adam Earth, just in different piles all around the room. And they're called brothers and sisters. We're all treasure in earthen vessels. And so we have to take God at his word and ask him to get involved in our lives. But of course, that requires reciprocation. We also need then to turn around and listen for his voice. How is he going to lead us in the way everlasting if we're never doing the readings? How is he going to lead us if we never come to the meeting and don't hear what he has to say from the platform through our brothers and sisters? So come back to Hebrews 12 where we were, engaging in this process. That's the key. We have to be exercised. So we read in verse 11, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. In the moment, it's not a whole lot of fun. But if we're exercised by it, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now that word is the Greek word gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium, which literally means to exercise vigorously the school of athletics those that are exercised thereby. So what you have to do is get a personal trainer, God, and have him come into your life and run it through drills for you to help you exercise. Ask him to look at you and say, what are the things that need to be dealt with that stand between me and the kingdom of God? and discipline me, which we get the word discipleship from, it's the same word, to correct and to discipline on the way. Because what he's interested in and what we need to be interested in is the end result. So come back, if you would, to Deuteronomy, where we started off. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 again, the end result is what God is interested in. Verse 11, beware that you forget not Yahweh thy God in not keeping his commandments. And he goes on to say, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good when? At the latter end. That's what good is, God is interested in. To do thee good, to deal well with thee or make a thing good, to make a thing right or beautiful, but this is at the latter end, afterwards, in the latter time. So in the moment, it's not exactly fun. But the end result is what we're looking for. And if you've ever worked out at a gym, in the moment, it's not really that fun. You know, you've got people yelling at you, no pain, no gain, you know, and all this kind of stuff, right? So it's, it's painful, but it yields muscles if that's what you're looking for. What we need to do 
is go through the process and engage with this, embrace it, and have our God work with us and get to that end result. And the thing is, when there are troubles in our lives, brothers and sisters, and trials, we can't just toss the plot and say, well, I'm done. We've got to remember what the apostles said. If you just come over to John chapter 6, I mean, slightly different context, but the, the, the principle here is the same. John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ said to the 12, will you also go away? There was a trial. He'd said some things that were difficult to be heard. Well, Simon Peter, John 6, 67, turns around and says, well, Lord, to who are we going to go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go in times of trouble? Thou hast the words of, the etern of eternal life. It's the only thing that we can do. Now, I want you to come, if you would, over to Ruth, because Ruth is a story of a family that left the truth, a family that did toss the plot for a while, and they went off into Moab. No ecclesia there, isolation completely, um, economic hardship, there was a famine in Bethlehem, so what are we gonna do? Leave the meeting and go and seek prosperity, quote unquote, somewhere else. And we come to the end of, of their, their sojourn, and we know, of course, that Elimelech dies, and then Marlon and Chilion die, and you know, you can think of what it would be like for the Bethlehem ecclesia. Oh yes, Elimelech and Naomi, they left the truth, took their two kids off into Moab, and we've never heard from them since. They're gone. Really? Well, Ruth is kind of neat because it's a story of somebody who left the truth, and this is what God was doing in the meantime, while the ecclesia was kind of, you know, completely out of the picture, because he doesn't start working with us, and he doesn't start working with brothers and sisters who leave the meeting either. He's still working in their lives, and if you think that you get to walk away from the ecclesia and God's not going to do anything about it, guess again. He's invested a lot. I mean, just think about it. Each one of us has been invested in by all kinds of brothers and sisters. All kinds of them, our parents, our grandparents, uncle this, aunt that, so-and-so, Sunday school teachers. These are all God's army that he has deployed in your upbringing and your raising and your fashioning. And if you think you're going to walk out the door and he's going to let you go, forget it. It's going to get really ugly. He's going to work to discipline you and bring you back because he loves you. And that's what happened to Naomi as she went through her circumstances. But notice here that she owns it. Verse 20. She said unto them, this is the people of Bethlehem, the ecclesia when she returns, she says, don't, <coughs> excuse me, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. And notice what she says, I went out for. She doesn't say Elimelech dragged me off. She doesn't put the blame on him. She owns it. And from this statement, it would appear it's her idea. I went out for. And Yahweh hath brought me home again empty. Why call ye me Naomi, seeing Yahweh hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? She lost a husband and two sons. Yet, while she dwelled in the land of Moab, although it was her foolish decision, God had been working with her. And in all her trouble, the thought of abandoning the truth was not an option. 
and she teaches her two daughter-in-laws the truth. And when she decides to go back, Ruth will not let go of that. And she sticks with her all the way through. And so God deals with Naomi and brings her back. And of course, when you look at the law, the provision under the law, if we come back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and again, you know, the law is a law of great compassion. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and we look there at um, verse uh, 17, Yahweh uh, your God is a God of gods, a Lord of lords, a great God, a, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. All of Naomi's troubles were looked after by God. Now when you look at this, and you look at that definition, Ruth fits all of them. She is fatherless because she left her father and her mother. She's also a widow because her husband died and she's also a stranger because she's a Moabite. She's all of those things, every single one of them and God provides for her and deals with her kindly and makes this great provision. And so we read of it in Deuteronomy, you know, we won't go through the whole verse, but the, they were not to glean the corners of their field. It was to be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and so on. And God reminds them, you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you this thing this day. And so we have to remember, brothers and sisters, where we have come from. And don't think too highly of ourselves. Be generous. That is God manifestation. He provided for the needy through the generosity and faithfulness of the wealthy. And that's what we have to do for those around us. Now, there's a flip side to this I don't want to end without talking about, and that's the trial of prosperity. Because in Deuteronomy 8, it also mentions this as well, that prosperity can be just as much of a trial as can, um, you know, poverty. So if you come to Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read there his warning to us in this circumstance. Deuteronomy 8 verse 11, be, uh, beware that thou forget not Yahweh thy God and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and you dwell therein, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and you forget Yahweh thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. See, prosperity can blind us. It can make us forget who our provider is. When we grow prosperous, it can cause our faith to wither and to shrivel up. That's what the word actually forget means, to wither, to cease to care. So our faith can literally wither up and cease to exist when we put our trust in ourselves. And it can breed arrogance, as we see there in verse 17. And now say in thine heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. And thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God, for he is that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto you, to your fathers as it is this day. And so, brothers and sisters, remember that power the strength to get wealth or affluence, the ability, the might, or the, the, uh, the efficiency, the force that we have there is given to us by Yahweh. 
And remember that, young people. It's not going to be your degree, your MD or PhD or MAD or whatever you get. That's not going to give you the power to get wealth. That's God who does that. And remember that when you get into the workplace. You know, when you think that you've got to work and climb the corporate ladder and all this kind of stuff. And well, if, I, if I don't go to Bible class and I work that extra overtime and I, I take this and do that and, and then I go into this place and, and I end up not going to meeting, well, I mean, I've got to get this promotion and all those kinds of things and you push God out of your lives, remember that he's the one that provides for you. It's not you and your prowess and your ability and your skill and your ticking all the boxes of what the boss wants to see. It's God. Ask yourself what the most powerful man in Egypt, what his qualifications were. Joseph, apprentice shepherd at best, that was his training. Didn't actually get to be a full shepherd. The brothers were out shepherding and he's told to take them their grub. He's the gopher. You know, that's his training. And then he goes to Egypt. Well, great, now you're a slave. And yet God elevates him to his head of the house of Potiphar. And then Potiphar's wife goes for him. So God protects him. Probably didn't feel like it when he got thrown in jail. But now he's protected from Potiphar's wife. She can't get at him. Then he works his way up through jail. And he runs the jail. And then he goes and runs Egypt. And what's his qualifications? Nothing. That is the truth. And in your life, God can work with you, no matter what your circumstances are. You might have to spend a few nights in jail, yes. It might not always be fun. Uh, you might end up being a slave and have a few nights in a pit and a few other things. But God can work with you and bring you through if you put your trust in him and not in yourself. I mean, this was the problem with Sodom. The iniquity of the, the, uh, thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, which caused then the immorality that would follow on, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. And this, of course, is what Job really recognized when he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, in chapter 1, verse 21, and naked shall I return thither. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh hath taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. He did not look at himself as being the secret to his own success. God had given him everything. And he went through severe trials, but God brought him out the other side. In chapter 42, verse 12, Yahweh blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. And he multiplied to him all the things that he'd lost, including sons and daughters. And so God can be with us in all of these things. And the Lord Jesus Christ talks of this in the trial of the rich young ruler. If you just go over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we have the rich young ruler there. And in verse 22, Jesus, he says, to, you know, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And you know, all these things I've done since my youth, you know, I've ticked all the boxes. I've got all the things there. And in verse 22, Jesus says, hmm, one thing you lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. And it struck at the core of the issue with this young man. He went away after he heard this sorrowful, because he was very rich. That word sorrowful 
is to overcome with sorrow so much as to cause one's death. It's the same word that's used of Christ in Gethsemane. That's how upset this man was. He was not willing to lose it. It's Matthew 26, 38. And Jesus points out the core of the issue, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so, brother and sisters, the, the test is, you know, are we willing to give it all up? Are we willing to give up what this world has to offer? Come back to um, Hebrews chapter 12. Seeing we are compassed about, verse 1, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. Lay aside those things that stand between you and the kingdom of God. And you cannot look at my life and I cannot look at your life because you don't know what stands between me and the kingdom of God. But you know what stands between you and the kingdom of God. And if you're not sure, ask him to enter into your life and lay aside those weight. Whatever is prominent, whatever is a perturbance or a bulk, a mass, a heavy burden, whatever is the weight or encumbrance, are we willing to give those things up? And sometimes it means walking away from a job. I had to do that once. Job took me on the road three days out of four, three weeks out of four, I should say, where I was gone every week. I would come home on a Friday night, and sometimes it was two o'clock in the morning. I was back on a plane on Sunday afternoon, off to do the next, you know, work week or whatever it was, all over North America. And I got to the point after a couple of years, and it kind of got worse and worse and worse, and my boss wouldn't listen to it. I just said, all right, I've got to get out of here. I've got to find something else to do, and it was actually Brother Mark O'Grady who put me in contact with the company I work for now, and I phoned them up, and I left, and was able to then work from home. But I had to walk out the door and say, I can't do this anymore. And, and knowing that was killing me, basically had to just push on. And sometimes we have to do those kinds of things, take radical actions absolutely radical. You might be trained for that thing. You might have gone to school for that thing. But if that thing is what stands between you and the kingdom of God, you've got to be willing to put that burden, that weight down and move along and, and, and not um, take that thing on to the point where it's going to absolutely uh, crush you. So I just want to talk for a second. I realize we're probably out of time, but gain is godliness. So I think it's just important to just counterbalance this. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Acts 20, uh, where he talks about, you know, he didn't shun to declare unto them all the counsel of God. There's another side to this that we just need to talk about for a minute. And that is, is it comes up in, you know, the collective whole, right? all the council. It's all the pieces together, and you can't just pick what suits you and then toss the rest. That's what the churches do. We have to listen to everything, and it's like it puts it in, in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the, the scriptures of truth, which means to cut a straight course or to hold a straight course, to handle it aright, which means, by inference, you can wrongly divide the scriptures of truth, and the world around us does that all the time. So we have to actively pursue our God and put our trust in him. 
So we've referenced this. I won't look it up, but um, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will, and as the ESV puts it, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn from evil. So we have to trust not, put confidence in, or rely on our own understanding, and we have to make straight, level, or just, going a straight and right direction, our paths. And taking the word of God on, cleansing our lives by it. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By heeding thy word, taking heed according to thy word. With my whole heart I have sought thee. Let me not wander from my commandments. That I, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. And this is what God challenges us to do, to have the courage to obey him. Now just come quickly to Joshua 1 and verse 7. Joshua 1 verse 7, he tells us here, tells Joshua, be thou strong and very courageous. What does that mean? That thou mayest observe to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left. Why? that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. So what Joshua was told to do was don't be strong and courageous and go and fight Philistines and Canaanites. Be strong and courageous to do what I've told you to do. That's what was the challenge. The courage was to obey what God said. And that's the challenge to us. The courage is to listen to his word and do it. It's not about Philistines and Canaanites. They're not even, they don't even come up in the context here. That's what he's challenged to do. And we have to learn to put our trust in him in a similar way. Now, I just want to reference this passage. So he says here, you know, in, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3 to 5, um, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, and doting about questions and, uh, and strife of words, whereof cometh evil, or envy, sorry, strivings, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. What was the problem? They supposed that gain was godliness. Now, the word they gain is the idea of the acquisition of wealth or the source of gain. It is the idea of imagining that godliness is a means of faith or of gain, which is what the NIV would have you, have you say or believe. Rotherham says it's that which, um, which think that Luca is godliness. So there's, there's really three ways you can interpret this passage. You know, as you, you look at it, it's one, godliness can be used as a tool to gain wealth. Number two, a godly lifestyle can be a source of wealth. So Christian businessmen, you know, if I do good, God will give me money and brilliant, right? Um, and number three, wealth indicates a godly lifestyle. Well, all three of these notions are completely and absolutely wrong. Now, we won't bother turning this up, but just when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000, he says, look, you seek me, John 6, 26, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. That 
cannot be the motive in our lives of serving our God, that if we serve our God, he's going to provide all of the stuff and, and we're going to be set for life. That's not the point of all of this. And that's where the world goes madly and completely off, off the rails. All those loaves and fishes kind of concepts. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into this trap. John 6, 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endures for unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath, uh, hath God the Father sealed. So we have to make sure that we are not laboring for this life, but for the life of the age that is to come. We have to change our perspective, brothers and sisters. And, and i just like to throw that in as kind of a, uh, a, just a caveat, a little asterisk. We're not saying that, you know, if we go and serve God, it's going to be all, you know, rainbows and sunshine from here on in, and your bank account's magically going to fill up, and you're going to have everything you need. He's never promised that at all. That's what the world will preach, and you'll go on and watch these guys on the TV and they'll tell you, you know, send your money and God will fill your bank accounts up and all this kind of nonsense. That's not what the Bible has to speak about at all. Our goal has to be laboring for the kingdom. So just a caveat to end with, just so that we don't get tied up in those things and that mindset, and there's probably a ton more verses we're going to skip over here. I just want to end with this passage. And this is where we have to put our focus. It's Isaiah 55 and verses 6 to 9. Seek ye Yahweh while he may be found. So when you think about seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. Seek ye Yahweh, but it's a time-limited offer. While he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to his God. Right? It's the whole idea of repentance. Put away your agenda and what you think you want to do in your life and seek God above all else. Let him to return unto Yahweh and he will have mercy upon him for our God, and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Because God operates on an entirely different level. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, saith Yahweh. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He wants us to elevate our purpose, our thinking, our goals in life above this miserable little world we live in right now with all its nonsense. Set our hearts and our minds on the kingdom and look to that don't do what comes natural to us. Don't think about what comes natural to us. Learn what he wants to do and have the courage to do it. And then all the Philistines that we run into along the way, we won't have a problem with dealing. There will be manna, food from heaven to provide for our families, for our needs, not our wants, but what we need, we will have sufficient. And we need to learn to live with the sufficiency, recognizing that God has given us enough and what we need above all else is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and he'll look after the rest. But that's not our motive. Our motive is to be there with him in that day.